Welcome to the Hogan Levels False Claims Act podcast series. These episodes will focus on many important cases and issues that have surfaced in 2020, shaping False Claims Act enforcement today and in the years to come. In this six-part podcast series, our lawyers will analyze some key developments to help you prepare if the government comes calling with tough questions. The Supreme Court's 2016 decision in Universal Health Services, Inc. v. U.S. XREL Escobar continues to play a significant role in False Claims Act litigation, particularly with respect to the court's analysis of the FCA materiality element. Specifically under this requirement, the alleged misrepresentation made to the government must be material to the government's decision to pay a claim. The court emphasized that the FCA's materiality requirement is, quote, demanding and, quote, rigorous. Four years on, that decision continues to shape FCA litigation across the country. My name is David Bastian. I'm a senior associate in Hogan Lovell's Boston office. Joining me today to discuss these issues is Matthew Sullivan and Claudia Pear. Matthew is a counsel in our New York office. Matthew is a former federal prosecutor, and he defends corporate and individual clients facing government investigations, enforcement actions, sensitive internal investigations, and complex civil litigation. Claudia Pear is an associate in the firm's Washington, D.C. office. Claudia advises clients facing complex government and internal investigations, and a substantial part of her practice is devoted to FCA litigation and enforcement actions. For those of you listening, We are recording this podcast remotely from our homes in light of COVID-19 social distancing guidelines. Claudia, I'd like to start with you. Could you provide a brief background on the Escobar decision and tell us how it has impacted FCA litigation in the past couple of years? Thanks, David. The Supreme Court's Escobar decision provided a degree of clarity around the type of conduct that is actionable under the FCA. One of the things that it did was to make clear that the materiality standard, which is a key element of liability under the FCA, is demanding and rigorous. So to the relief of many potential defendants, the Supreme Court rejected an expansive view of materiality under which essentially any violation that could affect a payment decision was material. Instead, the court explained that the standard necessary to establish materiality would be whether the government would deny payment if it knew of the violation, um, focusing on the government's likely or actual reaction, rather than how some hypothetical reasonable government employee might have behaved. The court further stated that the FCA is not an all-purpose anti-fraud statute or a vehicle for punishing garden variety breaches of contract or regulatory violations. And this shields defendants from FCA liability for minor or insubstantial non-compliance. Matthew, I'd like to bring you into the discussion here. Now, the decision was announced four years ago, uh, yet courts still seem to be grappling with how to apply the announced standard. Why is that? In its Escobar decision, the Supreme Court did not provide a bright line test for materiality or articulate clear standards or list out criteria for what constitutes a materially false misrepresentation. Instead, what the court offered was examples of how to evaluate materiality. For example, the court said that designating compliance with a particular requirement as a condition of payment was relevant, but not sufficient alone to establish materiality. The limitations on the extent to which the court offered clear guidance in Escobar is particularly notable, given that determinations of materiality in FCA cases are typically fact-intensive, especially when you're dealing with complex regulatory and reimbursement schemes. 
because the Supreme Court left a number of questions unanswered, lower courts have been left to apply Escobar case by case without a comprehensive roadmap. As decisions from the past year illustrate, lower courts are continuing to develop standards for analyzing and deciding this issue in the wake of the Escobar decision. Great. Thank you, Matthew. And Claudia, could you provide one or a couple of tangible examples of cases where courts have, in fact, dismissed complaints that made only conclusory allegations um, under the materiality standard? Sure. In U.S. XRL Porter v. Magnolia Health Plan, the Fifth Circuit affirmed the dismissal of a complaint that alleged that a Medicaid contractor violated the FCA by using licensed professional nurses or LPNs for jobs that required registered nurses or RNs. The court, citing to Escobar's rigorous and demanding materiality requirement, concluded that the relator failed to allege that such staffing practices would have impacted Medicaid payment decisions. The court rejected the argument that broad boilerplate language generally requiring a contractor to follow all laws in contracts could create FCA liability. It said that this language is too general to support an FCA claim. So in this case of Porter, even if state law required the use of RNs instead of LPNs and the employer had violated state law, that wasn't sufficient under these circumstances. So Porter is a helpful case for defendants at the motion to dismiss stage for reinforcing that relators must include specific factual allegations demonstrating how a false representation of compliance actually affected or was likely to affect the government's decision to make payment to the defendant. And it demonstrates how the materiality requirement can be used as an effective gatekeeping tool. Just to follow up on that issue, have there been any examples of courts applying the materiality requirement at later stages in the litigation, i.e. after the motion to dismiss stage? There have been. So the Tenth Circuit in U.S. XREL Janssen versus Lawrence Memorial Hospital provides a useful framework for how a defendant can lodge a successful materiality challenge at summary judgment. In Janssen, the relator alleged that a hospital misreported patient arrival times in order to gain additional Medicare reimbursement, and also that hospital employee handbooks did not contain information about the False Claims Act, and so the hospital had falsely certified compliance with a provision of the Deficit Reduction Act. On the first set of allegations, those about patient arrival times, the court concluded that the relator had failed to present sufficient evidence of materiality, in part because the alleged falsification affected only a, quote, subset of a subset of data reported under certain quality reporting programs, and also that the nature of those inaccuracies in the reporting were at most minimal. And then on the second set of allegations, those related to employee handbooks and the Deficit Reduction Act, the court said that the allegations were, quote, precisely the type of garden variety compliance issues that did not translate into FCA liability. So Jansen helps to demonstrate how the materiality requirement can continue to have teeth past the motion to dismiss stage. It's interesting to see how you know this requirement will be prevalent and present and relevant throughout the litigation of an, of an FCA case. Now, Matthew, if I could bring you back into the conversation here, a number of courts uh, continue to embrace the position that government in action, after learning of an alleged fraud, 
demonstrates a lack of materiality. Can you explain the background and, and, and what that uh, sort of position entails and why courts are embracing positions like that? Sure. Escobar instructs that the materiality inquiry focuses on the effect on the likely or actual behavior of the recipient of the alleged misrepresentation or the government. Moreover, the Supreme Court stated that evidence that the government regularly pays a claim in full, despite actual knowledge that certain requirements were violated, would be, in the court's words, quote, very strong evidence that compliance was not material. Consistent with that guidance, courts around the country have endorsed the idea that inaction by the government after learning of alleged fraud demonstrates a lack of materiality. In Porter, for instance, the Fifth Circuit pointed out that the government took no action after the relator informed the relevant agency and the local U.S. Attorney's Office of the underlying allegations several years before filing suit and used this inaction as part of its justification for affirming dismissal of the complaint. And in Janssen, the Tenth Circuit emphasized that CMS investigated the relator's central allegations, did nothing in response, and continued to pay the hospital's Medicare claims. Notably, in reaching that holding, the court focused on the government's awareness of allegations rather than actual knowledge of the noncompliance. That's different than what the First Circuit said on remand in Escobar, which held that, and I'm quoting the opinion, awareness of allegations concerning noncompliance with regulations is different from knowledge of actual noncompliance. But the two cases were in different procedural postures, it's worth noting. Escobar arose on a motion to dismiss, while the disposition in Janssen came on a motion for summary judgment. Thank you, Matthew. And that's certainly an important distinction to keep in mind when comparing the two cases. And Claudia, now we're, we're seeing the Supreme Court guidance on materiality uh, that was originally articulated in Escobar take root in the criminal context as well. Can you give us an example of how that is being applied in criminal cases? So after Escobar, we expected that prosecutors, defendants, and courts might begin to apply the teachings of Escobar to criminal cases by examining the real-world impact of a criminal defendant's alleged frauds, frauds on the government and perhaps other alleged victims as well when evaluating whether a misrepresentation or omission was material. And in U.S. v. Clark, the district court granted a motion for judgment of acquittal, notwithstanding the verdict, on a few counts related to the submission of false claims after citing the rigorous Escobar materiality standard and concluding that the evidence against the defendant was insufficient to establish a false material fact. The case involved multiple counts of fraud against a defendant for obtaining small business administration set-aside contracts, and the court concluded that a failure to disclose to the government certain details regarding the extent of the defendant's involvement in certain contracts was immaterial, and that even if those facts had been disclosed to the government, the government may still have paid on the invoices. Turning to my final question here, as the decision continues to shape FCA litigation, uh, and we see it really pop up all over the country, uh, what can we expect uh, if different standards are applied by the federal courts in determining materiality? And Matthew, I'll give that question and, and ask for your input here. David, I think to the extent we see inconsistencies across decisions, particularly across various federal courts of appeals, litigants may become increasingly likely to try to seek further review from the Supreme Court. 
Now, whether the Supreme Court has the appetite to provide additional guidance on the question of materiality, uh, that's, that's another matter, and only time will tell uh, how that unfolds. Great. Thank you, Matthew. Well, to both of you, Claudia and Matthew, it's been a great discussion, and I'd like to thank you both very much for joining me today. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in any of the issues raised during this podcast, we would love to discuss them in more depth. Please feel free to reach out to any of our podcast participants to talk through any questions or comments you may have. For additional analysis on this topic and others around the FCA, please download our latest publication, False Claims Act 2020 Guide and the Road Ahead from HoganLevels.com.